1 Peter chapter 1. Follow along as I read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." The believers to whom Peter is writing were experiencing various trials. He says so here in verse 6, that they were distressed by various trials. There were a variety of trials that they were facing, not just one kind, but many kinds. This fallen world is filled with trials, dangers, toils, and snares. It's like a vicious and violent storm on the sea in the dark of night. The winds are strong. The waves are high. The night seems long. And the ship is battered. Sometimes believers might wonder if they will survive the night. These Christians might have wondered that for themselves. So the Apostle Peter gives them some truths to anchor their souls, to remind them that the ship might be battered in this storm, but it, it won't be ultimately and finally destroyed. It will not sink. Again, times like these, I think it's good to be a little more personal in the sense of not just proclamation, but then in the context of things that we have been praying for and the trials that our brothers and sisters in Christ go through. And, and one of the things that I have reminded to our dear sister in the midst of this intense trial is she just sits and waits and prays and for her son is that no one can prepare you for that trial. I can't prepare you for it. Uh, no person can. You really, in one sense, can't fully prepare yourself for a trial and the difficulty of a test of your soul and the, the sorrow and the intensity of things. that it, You can't describe it. And having been through the death of a child and having experienced that, I still, I, while I can tell you certain things, I can't say a certain number of words or a particular phrase or certain truths even that are just going to somehow make the storm stop or make you think that, okay, now I can get through this. You wonder how you can. So part of what I have been encouraging our dear sister, and I think sent and implied in communication via email to the congregation how to pray, is, is when I think my faith will fail 
Christ will hold me fast. And we sing that hymn and we know those truths, but it is times like these that that's the only thing I can say. Christ will hold you fast. And we sing, I could never keep my hold. And that's true. We cannot. But he will hold you fast. And so that's part of my counsel and my words is just, you're going to think you can't get through this. And you'll wonder how you'll get from minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day. But Christ will hold you fast. And then they'll be, by the Holy Spirit using the Word and your choices to believe God's Word, there will be those truths that will just anchor your soul and keep you moment by moment through this trial. And so Peter knows that. He knows that he can't address every particular trial of the various trials as he writes to these believers scattered in various places, but he knows there are certain truths that in the midst of the distress of a trial and the storm and the, the darkness of things, that these truths are sometimes they're bright lights, but as we're going through that, they'll seem like glimmers, but they'll bring joy to your soul in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer will bring those truths at the appropriate times to stir up your soul, to encourage you, and to anchor your soul. And so that's what Peter is doing here. We can read passages like this and just say, oh, it's, he's talking about all these theological truths and what are the truths, and he speaks of being chosen by God and and he speaks of being protected by the power of God, and we can analyze them, and we should, and study them. But, but Peter's goal here is to anchor these believers in these truths. He's not trying to take away the distress. That's not his role. That's not his ability. Uh, he's not God. And we can't do that as we minister to one another in times of distress, it's not up to us to take away the distress. He acknowledges that the distress of these trials are there. But at the same time, as you've often heard me say, there can be joy. And so it reminds them of these precious truths that, and again, this isn't an exposition of all these verses in detail, as you know, but he he reminds them, even at the beginning, you reside as aliens, strangers, foreigners. Your citizenship isn't here. This is a fallen world. It's a sinful world. And, and you've been redeemed, and you're still here in this fallen world. But, but God is at work, and this isn't your ultimate home. And so you don't make your final abode here. Your treasures aren't here. And so set your gaze ultimately on things, not of this age, but of the age to come. And so he reminds them of these truths. He reminds them that these truths will ultimately have a final end, that you'll be past this fallen world and all the trials and the sin and the things that affect you, and you will one day be in a place in which there will no longer be any curse, there will no longer be any night in the words of Revelation 22. No longer any more tears, no more distress. But what do you do in the meantime? How do you go through distress in such a way and trials in such a way that, that you can have joy? Simultaneously and coexisting with the distress of various trials, and so he reminds them of certain truths. He reminds them that they are chosen of God. You'll notice I'm turning pages because I'm editing as I go. This is, uh, I think sometimes, I, again, it's just time to be a little more personal in things. You know, the, 
part of sermon preparation is weeding through what you're not going to say, and in certain times and circumstances, you, you don't have the time to do that. So you print it out, and you edit as you go. So in these things, Peter is saying, you need to be reminded of certain truths. And, and what often we just need to hear is a statement of ability. When you hear me say this, um, like I, I did it last week, to try to encourage us in the area of sexual purity when I'm preaching on these things, you can, you have the ability, believer, you can remain sexually pure. And then you explain the example of Joseph, you explain how Joseph was able to do so, I'll do that again this morning at 10.30 through the example of Moses. And you explain, you can, and how and why, and how God is at work, and how He's sanctifying us, and what principles of sanctification will aid us in doing that. But it's a statement of ability. You can remain sexually pure. In this case, it's as though Peter is saying, you can glorify God in this trial. These various trials that are intense, that are distressing you, but you can glorify God. You can even worship God in the midst of those trials. Even as Pastor Sean was teaching in the book of Job, how Job, through an increasingly intense trial, as he heard all the destruction and things that were happening, fell down and worshipped. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You say, well, where does Peter say that? I don't see the words that those of you who are scattered throughout these various regions can glorify God and even worship God. He doesn't say it in those exact words, but he says it in this way in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's a statement of worship. Blessed be God. The word blessed means praise be to, to, to praise, to honor. And so what he's doing is in the midst of their trials, he's reminding them of certain truths. And he is saying, blessed be God. Worthy of praise is God. Worship God in the midst of this distress. You can glorify God. You can Worship Him and bless His name, the one who is worthy to be praised and blessed. So then, the question is always, within well, how? How can we bless God who is worthy to be praised and honored in the midst of such trials? And the answer is by being reminded of believing and living in light of certain truths. The things that are true in the light don't become untrue in the darkness. The things that are true when uh, the ship is on uh, the ocean and there aren't any clouds and it's all sun and the temperature's just right and the humidity is, is just right and you feel good, those truths that you rejoice in then, don't change when the sun goes down and the darkness comes and the, the storm comes and the winds blow and the waves are battering against the ship. They're still true. So Peter is saying you're encountering various trials and they're distressing. But here are some truths. They're still true. Cling to them. Let these things be the anchor of your soul. And he really begins by reminding them, blessed be God. Just be reminded of this truth. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. God is still worthy to be praised. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy of praise forever and ever. He's worthy of praise when you suffer when you go through trials. So when you do, bless Him. Praise the one who is worthy to be praised. Do like Job did. 
and bow and say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's true at all times, even in the midst of distressing and difficult trials. But then, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins to speak of God's mercy, God's inheritance, God's power, God's purposes, God's Son, God's salvation. He begins to delineate some things that are related to the praiseworthiness of God in our salvation that are a cause for us to greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you've been distressed by various trials. And so the first thing he brings up to anchor their souls that should anchor our souls is God's mercy. Even when you suffer, we can worship God for his great mercy. So he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Nothing is more comforting to the believer, and even the believer who's suffering, than the fact that God has shown the sinner mercy and that he will never face eternal condemnation in hell. If God is so merciful that he saved you from the wrath that your sins deserve, can you not trust him in your trial? So Paul describes this mercy. What kind of mercy is it? And here's that little word, great, who according to his adjective, great, Mercy. Great mercy. Sometimes what you just have to do is you, 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 don't, you can't sit down with a systematic theology book always in the midst of various trials and, and your mind is, is weighed down and heavy and I'm not saying you don't do that and you can't absolutely not do that. Of course you can. But I'm just saying sometimes all you have to do is I just need to. It's a great mercy. Great mercy. That's all you can do. Because that word in this context is given by God. Every word of Scripture is inspired by God. It's a great mercy. So sometimes what you do, brethren, is you just dwell on a word to get you through the moment or the hour or the day. It's a great mercy. It's not just mercy, but it is a great mercy described in other places in Scripture as is a mercy that is rich, or a God who is rich in mercy. Ephesians 2, verse 4. He's rich in mercy. God not, is not impoverished in regard to His mercy. His mercy is not, and His grace is not in short supply. It's great as to its quantity and its quality. It's a great mercy, and he's rich in mercy. And therefore, you think, oh, if this trial, is it going to overcome me? Is it going to be overwhelming? Am I going to be able? The God who was great and demonstrated his great mercy in Christ to you and is rich in mercy, it's not as though it ran out after your justification. And it didn't run out when things were more peaceful in your life. No, now the storm has come, and of course that's part of the sovereign wisdom of God that's later in the chapter or in the verses. But it's still there, and it's still abundant. And what makes His mercy so great? It's the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's mediated through the Mediator, the Savior, our great High Priest who shed His blood for us. And Peter will go on to mention that to them and 
remind him of those things in chapter 2. When he speaks of Christ in verse 21 of chapter 2, who suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. And then he'll say in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. It's a great mercy, and he's rich in mercy, because it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you bring those truths to mind. It's a great mercy, and it is through the one who is the Savior. But that mercy is unto what? Who, according to his great mercy, verse 3, has caused us to be born again. You've been born again. And this is why it's so important to know the Word of God, to for it to dwell in our hearts by faith and richly dwell within us and so that we might know what does that mean we've been born again it means you were once dead in your trespasses and sins you were spiritually dead enslaved enslaved to satan in your sin unable unwilling to respond in faith to the gospel but god who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Peter says you've been born again. You've been made alive. You've been regenerated. Rejoice in these things. Even when there's great distress. When trials come, don't forget the mercy of God in Christ. Don't cease to praise Him for His grace and His mercy. This merciful God who was worthy of worship before the trial is the same merciful God who is worthy of worship in the trial. So worship God for His great mercy. Be reminded of this truth. Let this be a cause for rejoicing even in the midst of intense, distressing trials. He's caused you to be born again. And it's unto a living hope. It's not just a hope. It's a living hope. It's a hope that that's not, again, to use just the opposite, it's not a dead hope. That's not hope. That would be an oxymoron. That would be a contradiction. But no, it's a living hope. And it's because of the living one. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So bring that to mind. Not only the mercy of God in Christ in His death, but in His resurrection. The gospel is not just He died, but that he is raised from the dead. It's a living hope. As you've heard me say before, the the resurrection is the Father's amen to the Son's words, it is finished. His words on the cross, I came to do my Father's will. I came to accomplish the redemption of my people. I came to secure the forgiveness of their sins, to bear the wrath. And he uttered those words, to tell us die, one word, but translated words, it is finished. And three days later, the father said, Amen. Raised him from the dead. It's a living hope. If he was still in the grave, there would be no hope. 
So it reminds them of God's mercy in Christ and this living hope that results. But then he reminds them that God is worthy to be worshipped in your suffering because of his inheritance in verse 4. So living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the the dead, and you've been born again for that, but that's not it. As glorious as our justification is, that is one of those doctrines you just want to dwell on and and learn and understand, and, and you want to understand what it doesn't mean, and you want to understand the false teachings on the doctrine of justification as taught by various heretics through the the centuries and even currently, but you want to dwell on as well, this is what it does mean, and as glorious as that is, it, it's, there's more to our salvation. There's a day of glorification when we will be with Christ, and there is eternal life in His presence. And so he describes this inheritance in this way, to obtain an inheritance, verse 4, which is, imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There's an inheritance. Again, this is where all the doctrines of our salvation come together in so many ways that that part of our redemption of his people is then They're adopted as sons and daughters, and they're his people, and we're his children, and and he is our God, and he is our Father. And as our Father, he gives us an inheritance, eternal life in heaven. But that inheritance is described in this way. It's imperishable. There are three words that there's synonyms but they all have a slightly different angle. Imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. Imperishable means it cannot be destroyed. An earthly inheritance can be lost through various means. The inheritance might be a 401k that then loses value, or it might be something that could be stolen or lost or destroyed in some way. But this inheritance is imperishable. And it's undefiled. That is, it's not tainted by sin and not polluted by evil. The things of earth are affected by sin and the fall. That's why if you lay up treasures on earth, They don't last. Moth and rust destroy, Jesus said, and thieves break in and steal. But this is an inheritance that's undefiled. It's not tainted by sin and the effects of sin. It's not polluted by evil. And it will not fade away, he says. It cannot change. It cannot fade. It cannot lose its excellence. And then he says it's reserved in heaven for you. This is the culmination of our salvation on the last day. And again, I know we, there's a, you know the theological uh, description of, of how we experience salvation. There's the already and the not yet. There are certain things that we already experience regarding our salvation, but have not yet been fully consummated. There are some things that are true that have been accomplished and we experience. And there are some things that we experience in part. In this sense, we already have eternal life, but not the consummation of that eternal life and this inheritance in heaven that's reserved, it's yet future. So we can rejoice about it as we consider what yet awaits but it's not yet consummated. It's, it's maybe a, not the best illustration, but when Angela and I were planning our trip uh, for our celebration of our 35th anniversary, we made plans and we made reservations and we had to do that, especially in a busy 
season in which there's limited uh, places to stay from other tourists and travelers. And so we make reservations and, and we would look at them. Here's what we're planning to do. And here's where we're planning to stay. And here's what we want to see. And, and now we've reserved it. But anything could happen, right? Another COVID experience, things shut down, can't go. We get sick, car breaks down. I mean, there's a whole host of things that could go wrong. So you're always thinking when you make those plans, especially extended plans over, you know, days, will it come to fruition? But you rejoice in it as you say, God willing, this is what we planned and we looked at the pictures, here's what we want to see. And it came to fruition. But there are times we make our plans and it doesn't. But here's an inheritance and a plan that's the plan of God. And it's reserved in heaven. And it's certain. <laughs> it's not going to, the plans aren't going to be somehow affected by us or the world or trials. No, it's reserved in heaven for you. So he's saying there's certainty to that. This inheritance that is indeed imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, it's reserved and it's future. So look toward it and rejoice, but don't fret that somehow it's not going to come. It's not going to fade away. It's reserved. It's waiting for you. So glorify God in your suffering. Worship God even in your distress because your joy is in His mercy and in that eternal inheritance. Well, I know it's reserved for me. But what if I don't make it there? What if my faith fails? Verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's just state it as it is. If we were quote-unquote Arminians in our theology... Up to this point, we could say, amen, all this is true. It's mercy. I understand that. They might not say all of this is true. They'd define it in other ways, especially chosen by God and in verse 2 and those things. But, but the point is, is they would say, yeah, this is what, it's by mercy. It's by the grace of God. We've been born again. What the cause of it is, they would disagree with. It would be our faith that causes regeneration rather than God's regeneration that results in our faith. And they would say, yes, there is an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and won't fade away. It is reserved in heaven, but you might not make it. Your faith might fail. Since faith originates from you ultimately and finally, then you could become unbelieving But again, there's a lot of things we know to be true from Scripture. That faith is a gift of God. So it's God's work, even the faith, so that faith won't fail. But I might say, but it's reserved, but am I going to get there? I made the reservation, to use the illustration of going on a trip, but I could get in a wreck. I might not get there. I might get sick. There could be a whole host of things happen. Okay, it's reserved in heaven, this inheritance for me. And I know God has reserved it there. What a wonderful inheritance. But what if I don't make it? Well, Peter reminds them of what we now call the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints by God. You are protected by the power of God. Through faith, not your own, a gift of God, for that salvation, the consummation of that salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Every word of that is just impregnated with so much truth that causes us to rejoice. You're protected. 
That's a military term Peter is using to refer to a garrison guarding and protecting a city. You're protected. There's a garrison around you, your faith, your life. Yes, there are assaults upon you. It's a fallen world. There's an adversary. There's your own remaining corruption. There are assaults upon you. But you are protected. There is a garrison, but it's not a garrison you created. You're protected by whom? God. God who is the Creator, eternal, sovereign, Lord. But the emphasis here is not just on God. He doesn't say you who are protected by God, but he says you who are protected by the power of God. The power of God. The omnipotent power of God. The God who can say, and the Savior who can say, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one's able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There's that word of ability. No one's able. No one can. Why? He's greater than all. He's more powerful than all. And again, you've you've heard it from others, you've heard it from me, you've dwelled on these things, but always think of, again, we say, I'm in His grip. And we get that from, no one's able to snatch them out of my hand. I've used the illustration before, again, just hear them and rejoice in these truths again. We've all played this game with our children where there's something in our hands and or where something happens and they want they're trying to pry and they're trying as hard as they can to pry it out of our hands and they start with the pinky and if they can just get the pinky up okay I got the pinky up Uh, depending on their age they just can't do it but maybe at times they finally pry your hand open we're greater than they are in strength and it's a struggle for them they may not be able to do it but at other times they can. I, I, there are times where you sit down with your boys and your arm wrestle when they're young and you show them <laughs> who's more powerful. But we don't do that now, 50-something-year-old men, do we? Because the power changes. Our strength, our ability fluctuates. It diminishes. Theirs increases. But what Peter is reminding them of is there's nothing and no one that's greater than God at any point. He is omnipotent. He never loses his power. So you're protected. This inheritance that awaits, you're going to make it there, believer. You're protected by faith. The faith that God has granted to you as a gift of grace. And by his almighty power. This that is reserved in the future, you will receive. You're protected by the power of God through faith. Again, faith isn't something you have at the beginning. It's something you continue in. We live by faith. We walk by faith. We're sanctified by faith. We'll talk about that at 1030 a little bit. But then again, it reminds them, for a salvation here talking about the consummation of our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When a believer breathes his last, his body is put in a grave, it begins to decay, and his spirit is immediately in the presence of the Lord. So we experience, again, a little more of the already. But it's still not yet. It's still not the last time. 
So when we have funerals for believers and we speak of where they are, we lay their body in a grave. They are with the Lord and they know the joy of being in the presence of God. The faith has become sight. But the, the consummation of their salvation still is not over because there is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time or what Scripture calls the last day, the final day. We sing of it, Oh, Lord, haste the day when the faith will be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. If I can remember the words, the trump will resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. See, that hymn says, there's something that's going to happen in the future. It makes my soul well. It's well with my soul now because of something that I know to be true in the last time. And so that's what we ultimately are waiting for. The last day, the final day, the day of Christ. It's it's described in various ways in Scripture. As an aside, it's not a two-parter or a three-parter. The last day is the last day. I'm talking about some eschatology here. You may not know that in some discussion about eschatology. If I can just put it plainly. A dispensational premillennial view has a part one and part two, or in some cases even a part three of this consummation of redemption, like a a secret rapture, and then a coming of Christ, but an earthly millennial kingdom with the institution of sacrifices and temple worship again that's obsolete according to Scripture. It's been fulfilled. It's not going to be brought back. And then after a thousand years, there's a now the consummation. I've even read of professors at very respected seminaries that you're aware of that will say, well, the rapture is part one of the second coming of Christ. I I don't see it in Scripture. This is an aside. This is free, as they say. (laughs) It's No, there's a last time, a last day, a final day. And what's described that will happen on that day is not in parts, separated among certain peoples of God as if we're not one. We're all one in Christ, Jew, Gentile, through faith in Christ. And the consummation of all these things is going to be in the last time, on the final day, the day of Christ. It all happens at the same time. Now you start figuring out how that fits into your eschatology and you read scripture. That's part of what has brought me from a default, all I knew, dispensational premillennialism to a different view. But that's sort of as an aside. But it's ready to be revealed. In God's timing, he's fixed today, and we await it. And we're protected until that time. So I can say to believers, from the truth of God's word, You may wonder, how am I going to get through this trial? You're protected by the power of God. It's not your power. It's ultimately His power. And in certain trials, you realize how little power you have and how great the power of God is. That's all you can say. I don't know how I held my daughter in my arms and my faith didn't fail. This is the power of God. It's that simple. But then he reminds them of God's purposes. In verse 6, he says, In this, you can't rejoice in the trial, you can rejoice in it. Let me use more technical language. You're to rejoice in every circumstances. You're not rejoicing for the trial. You're not saying the trial necessarily is good in and of itself. But God causes all things to work for good. And so in this trial, in the midst of it, that is because of the fall and sin and various things, when you're undergoing that distressing trial in this, meaning what I've just shared with you, what I've just said to you, Peter said, about God's mercy, God's inheritance, God's power. In this, you greatly rejoice. And then he says, every word is important. Even though now, 
for a little while, it's not eternal. This isn't an eternal trial. It's for a little while in comparison to eternity. If necessary, and there it's just like, is it? Yes, God is sovereign. And he'll tell them in verse 7 part of the purposes of God and the necessity of this. You have been distressed by various trials. Again, I say this because it's just, it's watershed. It was watershed for me. It wasn't until this scripture came to light that I began to understand why and how I could hold my daughter, cry and weep and wail with great pain and distress. But the words coming out of my mouth were worship to God. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you for giving her to us. And in that ICU, everybody in it. It wasn't like ICUs today where you're in separate rooms. It wasn't there. Back then it was more open and curtains and maybe there was a little glass for some. But, but all, all I could do was praise God as I held her. I praise you while I wept. And, and then I realized this is what this is talking about. You're being distressed by various trials, but you're rejoicing at the same time. That is the way it will be until the last time, the final day. It's the way it's going to be for the church. It is a fallen world. We battle sin and adversary. There are trials. But at the same time, you rejoice. It is how and why when Angela and I walked into a hospital where we thought her brother was after an accident, but he died on the scene. And they told us he's not here. He didn't make it. That we walked out crying, distressed, but rejoicing that he had recently placed his faith in Christ. Distress and joy at the same time. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. In this world you will have tribulation. Jesus said we're to take heart. He has overcome the world. The trials are temporary. They are for a little while, or as the King James says, for a season. In comparison with eternity, they are a while. You may think, when will the night go away? It will. But it may not be until the faith becomes sight. God is at work in that. And so rejoice in the truths, even in the distress, because he has a plan. He is at work. And this is where, just because of time, we don't have time to consider it. But God's purpose is in it, verse 7, so that the proof or genuineness of your faith Being more precious than gold. We refine gold because it's a precious metal and we want it without impurities. But your faith is more precious than gold. That's perishable. Your faith is imperishable. But even though he says gold is tested by fire, what happens? He's just assuming certain illustrations. It's tested by fire. And what is gold is purified and it comes out. He's saying your faith is like that. It's just more precious than gold. And it's not perishable like gold. It's imperishable. But God nonetheless is using the trial to burn off the dross and to show the genuineness or the proof of your faith. Why? So that then when the the genuineness of faith comes through the fire of testing that you're able to say, Oh, look at me. Well, look at that Christian. What a great Christian. It's not my faith, ultimately, in the sense that it originated from me. No, it's so God is using in His great wisdom the trials to demonstrate the proof or genuineness of your faith 
So that, here's the phrase, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to whom? To God understood when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the last time. When Christ is revealed again. When he appears again. And it's when you're protected by the power of God and you get there and through fiery trials... God burns off the dross so that on that day, what a day this will be. (laughs) We can't imagine it. When when the faith is sighted and the consummation and the resurrection of our bodies, the consummation of all of what God has done in salvation, and then, I I don't want to speculate, I don't know, I'm just how these things will be, but again, be able to say to one another, remember that testing and that trial? You were protected by the power of God. We wondered how we were going to get through it. But God was burning off the dross. And so together, what we'll do is praise God and give glory to Him and honor to Him for what He has done, not only in justification, but in sanctification, through trials, fiery trials, to the very end. It will all be to the praise and glory and honor of God on that day. And so it really goes back to how it began. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't recall if this is the first time I've taught since we started at 9 o'clock. But I did what Sean did the first time he taught after we changed our schedule. I just thought I was about to end on time. (laughs) And I realized, no, it says 10 o'clock instead of 9.45, but that's okay. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us, help us, give us aid. In every trial of all different kinds, Strengthen those who are here in this body who are undergoing various trials. Help us to rejoice in these things even in the midst of the distress. And all to the praise and glory and honor of your name, not only now, but on that day of the revelation of Christ. Amen.